Welcome to the Love, Sex and Intimacy podcast for women who want to experience intimate relationships and sex that are pleasurable and passionate, happy, thriving and deeply fulfilling. With my very special guest experts guiding lights and pioneers in their specialist areas, we'll be breaking down the myths, exploring the difficult stuff, the good stuff and seeing what's possible for love, sex and intimacy at this time of rapid change. In these candid and intimate conversations, I'll be bringing you the best of sex and relationship education, full of practical ways to support and inspire change in your intimate life. I'm your host, Sarah Rosebright. Whether you're curious about what's possible or you're already committed to exploring, I'm so happy you are here. Welcome to this episode on trauma, which is such an important topic to explore as it affects so many people. And I'm delighted today to be joined by trauma coach and educator, Catherine Hale. We cover so much in this conversation, including how Catherine defines trauma. She talks briefly about what the nervous system is and what a resilient nervous system looks like. She discusses the first steps you can take for healing trauma and why the gentle way is the sustainable way to healing trauma. And she talks about why certain approaches work and how they're different from others. Catherine also shares her wisdom on how to learn to get your needs met, how to establish healthy boundaries, how to find the right type of rest that's right for you, how to unlock shame and also the essentials for a thriving sex life. And we finish with a conversation where Catherine shares her wisdom as a postmenopausal woman and she passes some wisdom on for younger women Um, which I just think is fantastic. And obviously we always cover so much more. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome to today's episode. And I'm really excited and delighted to be joined today by Catherine Hale, an embodied trauma coach, educator and guide. So welcome, Catherine. Oh, thanks so much. Really wonderful to be here with you today. Oh, it's really wonderful. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. And I'd love you to share a little bit about what you do, what an embodied trauma coach is and, and the range of things that you, you explore and work with. Yeah, so, you know, trauma has become quite a big word in recent years, and it's wonderful that we kind of recognise trauma and that we understand it from a neurological perspective. That means that we can treat it far more accurately than has been done so in the past. So the work that I do is is supporting people who have trauma that's been unresolved to to find their aliveness to find their vitality to find their freedom again Um, and I say the word again I mean some people may have never experienced that but I do believe that inherent within all of our systems is that we have a blueprint of health and wellness and vitality so really the work is about reorientating people back to that place Mm, thank you and how did you get into this work Mm, well you know all the work that I've done over the last 10 years as a practitioner has really been a reflection of my own personal healing journey um so initially I mean way back when I, I you know did a lot of psychotherapy as part of my healing and then I did a whole chunk of time around sexuality embodied sexuality healing and what I came to realize is that a lot of the kind of places I was going to practitioners and workshops who were offering healing around sexuality 
weren't actually offering healing around trauma. And the two things go hand in hand. So I kind of realized that to really heal our sexuality, we need to be working with our trauma at the same time. And everyone has, you know, varying degrees of, of trauma. Um, we can't really live in this world without having experienced some kind of trauma. So for some people that might be just like a low level trauma, for others it may be complex PTSD that they're dealing with. Yeah, so, so right now in my work, I, I work with people who've experienced all types of different trauma, who want to thrive in their life, but I also work with people who are recognizing that the trauma they've experienced is showing up in their business. And looking at, you know, how do we resolve those patterns that are showing up within that arena? Being fearful of visibility, not having a healthy relationship to money, not having great boundaries in place, etc. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's a constant evolution, really, of what, I, what I'm experiencing is then what I then offer out into the world at a later point. Absolutely. And you work with people just in business or people who have trauma showing up in their lives or their relationships oh yeah. yeah yeah so um one of my programs is called thrive in life so the people that come to me on that program are having issues with relationships around sexuality around self-worth um yeah just a kind of sense that life isn't really working in the way that they want it to and they're ready and ripe for some level of transformation to happen and that transformation happens at the nervous system level first and then once we've shifted that then it's much easier to change behavior and thought mm, thank you and for people listening because the word trauma is used a lot could you speak a bit about what you've talked a little bit about low level trauma to complex ptsd mm. could you speak a bit about what you mean when you say trauma use the word trauma yeah, so I think of trauma as undigested experiences. So maybe something was happening just like too fast. It was too big. It was too soon for us. And so we can kind of experience this like tidal wave coming towards us, which may kind of flatten us, bowl us over. And if we can't then come back to kind of like a healthy baseline in our nervous system, then that re event remains as an undigested and triggering event within our nervous system. And how you've mentioned again a little bit, but I'd love to hear what you see with your clients of how this impacts our lives, trauma, mm. how it impacts all aspects of our lives. Yeah. You know, what I, what I t tend to see a lot with my clients is developmental trauma. So we could say that developmental trauma happens within the first two years of life. And it's really about, our needs not being attended to. So that might look like when we express that we had a need, that we were silenced in some way, or that when we reached out for our need, we were ignored or shouted at or hurt in some way, or that when we try to receive the need, it felt too overwhelming to receive it. So we can only receive like a micro level of our needs um, so I tend to see that is the foundation for pretty much everyone I work with and 
whether it's business, whether it's sexuality, it's like we start there. Because unless we've got that piece in place, unless we understand it cognitively and we've worked through it somatically through the body, then you can't really build a healthy sexuality unless you've got those foundations in place. Mm. And the foundations include not just knowing what we need, but also having healthy boundaries in place mm. around those needs. And so you mentioned the, the, the transformation has to happen at the nervous system level first. Mm. And again, nervous system is sort of a word like trauma that people are using a lot. And, and so to just share some understanding for people listening about what the nervous system is and in terms of transformation at a nervous system level, what does that look like? Yeah. So quite simply, the nervous system's job is to keep us alive. Right. And it will do whatever it needs to do to keep us alive, which is wonderful, right, that we have that in place. <clears throat> when people are talking about trauma, they're talking about a particular branch of the nervous system, the autonomic nervous system. And the autonomic nervous system is split into two branches, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. And in the absence of fear, the sympathetic nervous system enables us to get on and do stuff right it's like the it enables us to go for a run to go for a walk to do the shopping to do the work that we need to do right and then we have the parasympathetic nervous system which is much more about being slow digestion calming resting so we have those two branches and when there is fear present, these two branches operate differently. So the sympathetic nervous system will either go into fight or flight, which are terms I'm sure most of your listeners are uh, familiar with. And the sympathetic, the parasympathetic nervous system will go into a freeze response. I mean, this is, this is really simple. I'm really simplifying it here. But, and these responses, the fight, flight or freeze, are meant to be time limited. They're meant to be like, oh, this is really dangerous and I need to get away from this situation. The body pumps adrenaline and cortisol into the system and then you've got the energy to be able to run away, right? Or, um, or to fight that situation. And in the parasympathetic nervous system, if our nervous system is detecting that the threat is too great for us to run away from or to fight, then it will go into a what we call a hypo or freeze response. And there are kind of different levels of freeze um, from kind of more like a kind of panicky feeling right down into a complete collapse, major dissociation. So just kind of understanding that these responses are healthy responses, right? We need them, right? Without them, we would do really stupid things. And we probably wouldn't live to be very long or live to be very old. The problem is, is that when these responses get stuck into the on mode, that's when we have what we would call trauma in our system. Mm. So it's like the, our baseline of nervous system regulation is hugely affected and we are constantly in a place of fight, flight or freeze, or we're frequently 
in a place of fight, flight and freeze. We don't have much capacity to stay in regulation. And what does regulation look like of the nervous system? So regulation kind of really is, a, is another branch of the nervous system called the ventral vagus. And when the ventral vagus is in operation, it basically puts the brakes on these other responses, the fight, flight, freeze responses. So ventral vagal, you could say, is our like natural state of well-being. It's where we feel safe, connected, alive, joyful, loving. So regulation feels like those things. Mm. And so your work's bringing people back to that balance and that healthy state. Yeah. Mm. Teaching them how to kind of navigate their nervous system, deal with uh, the challenges as they arise, the fight, flight, freeze, but with the intention of always coming back to that place of health. Mm. Thank you. And I remember, um, actually, I just spoke to uh, a, a woman for the podcast around pelvic um, health. Mm. And she was saying, you know, the last two years, she's noticed a, a, quite an increase in women coming through her practice with a lot of pelvic tension, a mm. lot more than previous two years, yeah. with so much happening in the world. And with such, uh, with so much of just life today, isn't it, whether for all sorts of different reasons is so stressful for so many people. I've heard you sort of talk about the word resilience. Would you speak to, to what resilience looks like? Yeah, and I just want to say something about stress first. So stress is necessary, right? It's not a bad thing, but it's like we need to be able to recover from a stressful event. And so that capacity to recover from a stressful event is where resilience lies within the nervous system. So there's a term which is coined by Peter Levine, who is like one of the grandfathers of trauma resolution work. And he, he describes this window of tolerance. So the window of tolerance is the place where we feel resilient. It's the place where we have well-being. When stress comes into the system, we might, um, ideally, we still stay within the window of tolerance, like we still have capacity to meet that stress. The problem arises when that stress or traumatic event is greater than our window of tolerance. And then that takes us out and that takes us into those kind of um, patterns of fight, flight and freeze. So resilience really happens at a couple of different levels. We have nervous system res resilience or physiological resilience and psychological resilience. And the two go hand in hand. When we have physiological resilience, we have psychological resilience. When we have psychological resilience, we have physiological resilience. Mm. and we can increase our resilience so if you're if you're someone listening to this right now and you're like oh I get triggered super easily firstly like know that you're not the only one and that's like super normal given the times that we're living in but secondly you know trauma isn't a it isn't a death sentence this is the wonderful thing about trauma resolution is that we can actually rewire the brain through neural pathways. It's called neuroplasticity. We can rewire the brain so that we no longer have these traumatic um, flashbacks or experiences kind of hounding our lives. 
And one of the ways in which we do that, or the effects of doing that, is that we have greater resilience. Mm. Thank you. And I think that's so important what you share there around the, the capacity and possibility for healing and, mm. you know, just the amount of trauma practitioners, for example, that are available now on the planet just in the last few years is just increased phenomenally. And, mm. and for, that's just absolutely wonderful that people have access to people like you where that was pretty rare a decade ago. Yeah, yeah. So for someone who recognizes the impact that trauma has, what would you say is um, some, what are the avenues for them to address this for themselves? Uh, how, in terms of healing from this? Mm. Okay, so trauma is in the body, right? Somatic, it's in the body. So a large percentage of any trauma healing you do needs to be body-based. That's not to say that talk therapy, cognitive behavioral therapies, a more kind of top-down approach are not relevant, but kind of think about it as a percentage ratio of like 80% body-based, 20% uh, more cognitive. And so with the with body-based um, or somatic trauma healing essentially you want to be working with somebody who can help you connect to those states of dysregulation in your body but in a titrated way and what i mean by titrated is like a drop at a time you know i think i think you and i have both experienced like cathartic workshops right where it's like just jump in and kind of like have the experience right and they, they're, they're essentially just not trauma-informed spaces. So a trauma-informed healing approach is about doability. Can we just do this like one step at a time? Can we stay within the capacity of the body? You know, often there's this tendency to want to rush the healing process. It's like, okay, I've now realized kind of what's there for me to deal with. And I want to resolve that. And I want to do it within the next six months. Whereas the reality is, is that trauma healing is a lifetime journey because we can only go at the pace that the body will allow us to go at, which is usually way, way, way slower, but yet way more impactful than uh, some other approaches, like the more cathartic approaches could be. So if you're looking for someone to support you on your trauma healing journey, you wanna find somebody who is trauma informed at the least, right? I mean, there's a, a, a theory which I kind of spoke into there about you know, the vagus nerve and it's called the polyvagal theory. Like ideally you want somebody who's trained in that and who really understands that, has practical application of that. Um, and so what I'm seeing right now is there are people out there promoting themselves as trauma-informed. And my suggestion is, is it would be wise to check people's qualifications and experience um, before going in and starting to unpack your trauma with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, and I say that whether it's sex, sex therapy, coaching, relationships, whatever it is, I think it's to feel 
empowered to go and interview the people that you want to work with yeah um, and to really do the research um, mm -hmm. with that and to ask the questions and yeah have you worked with this before how how do you work with this because any um any practitioner of quality will give you the time to answer those questions Absolutely. and you know if the, if they don't that that's a, a no-no for sure um, so yeah thank you and i really I, I think again just to to highlight what you shared around how the small doable things are impactful and mm -hmm. and you know the the, the 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 i sort of call it the gentle approach to healing mm -hmm because that sort of huge experiences, cathartic releases often can end up with people feeling more unsettled than they went into the space. Whereas the gentle way to me is a sustainable way. Yeah. Because that's where you're making the changes that last in the system. Absolutely. And when we live in such a quick fix culture, that can be a bit of a shock to people. <laughs> However, yeah. it is the difference that makes a difference for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And, and, and you, you talk about the, the, this, um, you mentioned around the, we talked a little bit about as this is a sexy life podcast and a lot about sex and intimacy. You mentioned around boundaries and getting needs met and, and these are sort of essential fundamental uh, components of a healthy relationship of healthy sexuality. So for somebody who's listening, who maybe doesn't know how to get their needs met, um, mm. I'd love you to share sort of your wisdom around, around that. Yeah. So again, so when somebody doesn't know how to get their needs met, we're dealing with some developmental trauma. We're dealing with a very young part of us who didn't get cared for, essentially. And so it's useful to kind of know on the developmental sequence where you've got stuck. So is it that you don't know what it is that you need? So often I see that with people. They've got like a hypo or a freeze response around their needs. And what those people need is actually to come into a relationship with their body and to start sensing, noticing what they need. And it's usually wise to start that exploration on a physical level rather than um, a relational or sexual level, because those are kind of quite charged territories. Mm -hmm. So the questions you might start asking yourself on a daily basis is, is, is my body the right temperature? Do I need to drink? Do I need to eat? And just noticing those cues at a somatic level that give you that information. If you're somebody who um, doesn't know how to kind of reach out and communicate your needs, then it's worthwhile practicing this with a friend or um, a practitioner. If you can kind of sense what it is you need, then beginning to kind of like step into the vulnerability required to put that request out there, knowing that you might receive a no. And I would actively encourage having experiences where you get to receive a no because then you get to kind of meet whatever that brings up for you oh i'm going to be rejected if that person says no it means i'm rejected i'm not okay i'm not worthy i'm not good enough whereas the reality that's not true the reality is, is that person just doesn't want to do that well let's say that you know one of your um, challenges on the developmental sequences around 
receiving your needs. So you might again want to begin to sense and feel and notice as your need, uh, this, the possibility of your need being met comes towards you, what happens somatically? Do you tighten? Do you close down? Do you panic? Is there a trauma response that's happening in your body as this possibility of having your need met comes, comes closer? And then again, like working with a practitioner or a trusted friend to explore what is the 1% that you can actually receive right now? So it might be like you ask to receive some touch and you do it for 30 seconds the first time. And then the second time you might do it for a minute. And then the next time it might be like a minute and a half, right? That's titration. That's building things up drop by drop, step by step. So once you recognize like where you are in that developmental arc, then there's actually something you can do about it. And, you know, this isn't just related to sexuality, of course, and intimacy. It's related to everything. So once you start doing this work, you'll start seeing like all your relationships will shift. Your relationship to work, to money, to pleasure, everything will begin to start to shift for you. And it's a wonderful journey of discovery if you can give yourself the space and time to actually really engage with it. Mm. I love the simplicity of just starting off with the physical needs mm. and noticing what we need in the moment. Just the, the very simple things like temperature yeah. it just feels very doable mm -hmm. to bring that awareness to. Mm -hmm. And you shared there about... Um, receiving a no mm -hmm. and how that is and another aspect I see a lot is also expressing and I know you do too is expressing the no yeah. so I'd love you to speak about boundaries because often mm -hmm. and, and how trauma impacts boundaries and what the healthy boundaries look like and voice yeah. and no. yeah so let's just say your experience as a young child was to have your knees neglected and so you learned that you needed to attend to somebody else's needs in order to feel loved. And so then you kind of move through your adult life replicating that pattern. And it becomes all about the other person and you neglect yourself. And so you can find yourself in this pattern of like overgiving and under receiving. So the kind of correction in that situation is to learn to listen to your own needs and to ask for your needs to be met and to receive your own needs, but to also to be able to say no to the other and know that it doesn't mean that the relationship is going to end. So to unpack the abandonment that will be coupled into this and to feel the fear, to feel the anxiety, the part of you that wants to run away, to work with all of that somatically so that you can come back into a place of trust, that your no will be valued, respected, understood, celebrated even, mm. and vice versa. When someone gives you a no, you can do the same thing. Mm. Mm. Thank you. And anything else you'd like to sort of share around healthy boundaries? I mean, there's so much to say about mm -hmm. it, but you know, essentially boundaries are in service to our needs. 
boundaries can be those kind of degrees of boundaries, right? So there might be something which is just like, I never want to do that sexually. It's just a, it's just a complete no for me. And then there may be places which are like, well, I might want to explore that, but I don't want to do that right now. So we've got this kind of like maybe space. And then we've got the, hell yeah, I really want to do that thing. And I've got a complete yes for that. So, you know, we've got a boundary which is about moving towards. It's like there is an opening here. I can move towards what I desire. There can be this sense of like mm, hesitancy. I'm going to hang back because I'm not really sure about this. And then there can be like that. Mm -mm, no, this just isn't right for me and I don't want to participate. And so we need to kind of know um, like what our embodied response is to different requests that might be made and to be able to really honour what our body is communicating to us and know that what might have been a hell yes yesterday might be a no today. And what might have been a maybe yesterday is a yesterday. So there's like fluidity and change that happens within boundaries. Mm. You know, if we've been in hypo around our boundaries, it can be very confronting to start putting boundaries in place. We're really threatening to our sense of well-being, identity, our attachment. And the other end of the spectrum, excuse me, <clears throat> is to have hyper boundaries, really rigid boundaries. Like no to everything. Mm -hmm. No, I'm not going to do this. No, I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not going to do that. Right? That's a way to try and create safety. Neither of those states are wrong. We're not going to shame them. But when we recognize that we might be in either one of those places, then perhaps there's something we can start doing a little bit differently and take tiny, like doable steps to explore our boundaries with a safe personal therapist or practitioner. Mm. Thank you. And I think that's lovely, the invitation to explore them because it's like a muscle, isn't it, that we exercise. It takes time and practice. And I know from being in a place where I didn't know what I wanted, mm. couldn't ask for it. And, and, you know, still now it's a journey. Sometimes it shows up, of course it does. Mm. And seeing it as something that we can practice, having agency around. And mm. as you say, with a trusted friend or, and that's where a practitioner can come in, yeah. because you don't have the dynamics and the relationships and the emotions that can can come and so it can be such a safe space to explore so that's some lovely suggestions there mm. Mm. thank you <laughs> and in terms of uh anything else that you'd like to share from your wisdom around healthy resilient thriving intimacy and sexuality that's important Oof. <laughs> so much <laughs> Let me just tune in for a moment. Mm. I mean, I, I think there's this piece around, you know, what are we getting into relationship for? And, you know, for many of us, we've had attachments in our early years that haven't been secure and so we can come into the relational sphere playing out those unmet attachment needs and those attachment patterns and I think it's 
I mean, there's so much information about this, you know, following someone on Instagram who's talking about this on a daily basis. But, you know, just to be aware of what our attachment patterns are and so that we can take responsibility for them, communicate them and also be willing to do the work that's needed to come into sort of more secure relational attachments. And, you know, attachments that we had in our formative years are shaped by the trauma that we experienced. Um, so that can just be another lens through which we can look through and get clear on what our trauma really is and what we need to do to, to heal it within, within a relational context. Mm. Yeah, thank you. And again, something, there's so much out there to explore this on um, in terms of attachment for sure. I'd love to um, shift gears a little and talk about the subject of rest <laughs> because you did a great newsletter recently where you talked about how rest can be threatening for our nervous systems mm. and also you have this um concept of sort of active rest and mm. it's something that's so um, missing in our culture in terms of permission to have rest from ourselves and uh, for me, something I've had to really learn to do and honour because mm -hmm. everything's about productivity and movement and value and all of these things. So I would love you to talk about rest because it's something that so many people are missing in their lives. But what, what can rest give us? And, and, mm. um, and, and also this concept of active rest, which I think is really helpful. So let me explain why the nervous system might feel threatened by rest. So for some of us, being still was a time when we might have been overwhelmed by something. And so the nervous system is wired to just keep on moving, keep on being active, getting away, being much more in that fight flight response. And so rest is down in that parasympathetic place. What also may happen for people is that as they go into rest, it triggers a freeze response in their nervous system. because the two things kind of get coupled together. So it's like rest is not a safe place to be. I've got to keep on moving. I've got to be hypervigilant. I've got to see what's around me. And so, you know, we, we see a lot of people like, you know, you've got to rest more. You've got to rest more. But the reality is for some people is that rest is just too much, mm -hmm. right? So this idea of active rest is the sense that what can we do to slow down from what might be an overactive and hypervigilant state? What's, what's the one step we could take towards being slightly more restful? And then what's the next step we could do after that? So again, it's just about being able to build capacity for rest in the nervous system. You know, at one end of the spectrum, we could look at things like yoga nidra as a way of resting. But for some people, that might be too much. That lying down might feel unsafe to them. So as they lie there trying to rest, actually, they just become very triggered and activated in their nervous system. So for that person, rest might look like a gentle walk at this stage. Or it might look like doing the yoga nidra with a really safe friend. It might look like doing it sitting upright with a back against the wall. 
So we've just got to kind of recognize where our nervous system is and what our nervous system patterns and tendencies are to discern what type of rest is really available to us at this stage of our healing journey. I think that that active rest concept, because for so many people as well, rest can be, um, you know, I've done it, hands up, done it myself so many times. It's, it's like a few glasses of wine or different ways. And so I think for a lot of people I work with, it's like I see going to rest, just they find their really busy mind there, for example. And it doesn't feel like rest or they don't know how to switch off. So I think this active rest is like a bridge from our busyness mm -hmm. transitioning in a way that's um, more uh, in, in little steps. Yeah. So, for example, one of the things I love is things like as well, like Tai Chi and Qigong, because the softness of the movement helps the body to relax in a different way than sometimes I notice people can go into yoga and treat it like a full time exercise routine and don't even feel don't feel rested afterwards mm -hmm. um, and so there's a softness that happens in the body that brings a different unwinding to the system yeah as well and you know like I say before we live in a culture that just doesn't value rest for so many people it's like well it does why well, I'm not not doing anything what's the point yeah <laughs> and there's a level of understanding the value of rest when it isn't given any uh, value in our culture yeah, and if you think about this on a nervous system level, we need to be moving from sympathetic to parasympathetic throughout the day. If we're just in sympathetic all the time, we're just kind of revving our system up. We're using cortisol as a way to get stuff done, and that creates stress. So that's not a place of health within us. And, you know, one of the things that I've learned as a now postmenopausal woman is that arriving at the threshold of perimenopause with adrenal glands that have been overworked because I was dependent upon cortisol to get stuff done was a recipe for disaster in menopause. And the reason being is that the adrenal glands pick up some of the jobs that the ovaries used to do um, as we move through the menopausal transition. So if there's one piece of wisdom, I'm, I know I'm going off on a tangent here, but if there's one piece of wisdom that I could give to female bodied people who are not yet at that menopausal journey is to is to really take care of your adrenal glands. And that's why rest is so important to spend time in that parasympathetic part of the nervous system to recharge so that your adrenal glands are like they're like a, they're like a bank account that's like super abundant rather than like you being thousands and thousands of pounds in debt when you arrive at perimenopause. Yeah, and that's yeah. such a, I think it's a great tangent to go on because it's such a, a shock for so many women at perimenopause because often mm. what we haven't attended to in our body shows up in like super multicolor 3D. <laughs> and, and, you know, people, you know, when you when you're 20 and 30 and people say look after your body for me it just was just went over my head it's like what oh, yeah. do you mean this body's working I've got it for the rest of my life you know <laughs> and then you suddenly realize in your 40s that it's changing quite rapidly and you have no control over it so yeah absolutely what you can put in in the earlier years is gonna like you say I love that analogy putting it in the bank account mm. yeah. yeah and 
being a postmenopausal woman, is there any any other wisdom you'd love to share from your menopausal years with some of the listeners? I mean, again, this is for for cycling women. You know, the menstrual cycle is actually an inbuilt healing process if we attend to it correctly. And so, I mean, there's so much around menstruality these days. Um, but if we if we understand the basics, which is that we transition through four seasons in every cycle, and that in each of those seasons, we have different levels of energy available to us. And the energy either might be really inward or really outward, depending on where we are. So ovulation is very strong outward energy and menstruation is like is inward energy. And if we use that cycle um, correctly, then when we get to perimenopause, we'd have done so much of the work that those of us who didn't work with our cycles so attentively have had to do during the menopausal years. So, you know, so many women talk about the trauma that comes up during menopause. And my sense is, well, if we'd all been doing the work since our first menstruation to our last menstruation, we'd have much less to contend with during that time. Mm -hmm. And of course, the cycle invites a natural period of rest when we're menstruating. So it's all there already. (laughs) Framework for healing is, is, is wired into our bodies. We just need to kind of listen and understand it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And have a culture that supports it. Well, that would also well. be really yeah. helpful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this love, I love this because for anybody listening, you know, who doesn't have a great relationship with their cycle for whatever reason, there's so many wonderful teachers out there now, isn't there? Mm-hmm. And resources and um, that you can go and, and find and so much more awareness that it, even can be a beautiful and positive thing and it and it can be a cycle of healing and all of these things which certainly wasn't available when I was a teenager (laughs) so we've come such a long way on so many levels yeah um and that we can um support our bodies and listen to our bodies and also create lives that can support this as well I mean lots more Mm -hmm. companies are now bringing in menstrual policies where there's specific policies to support people having time off if we're having problems with our bleed and all these different things, mm-hmm. um, which even menopause policies now are coming in, which is just, you know, absolutely incredible. So, yeah, thank you for sharing that. So circling back to sexuality, what else is there anything else you feel that's really needed for sexuality to thrive? I love mm-hmm. that word thrive. <laughs> So I'll just reiterate, you know, the foundations are knowing what we want, being able to communicate that and having healthy boundaries in place. And then there's a possibility of coming into kind of experimentation, exploration, curiosity. I mean, developmentally, that's what should have happened when we were teenagers. Because we should have had our needs met. We should have had the healthy boundaries put in place and that all modeled to us so that when we, we arrive in our teenage years, that we can have this time of exploration with others, get curious about our preferences and to be supported by the greater community at large to have those explorations. And what I see a lot when I'm working with women around their sexuality 
is that particular phase, there's often so much shame combined with their sexual experiences. So often we need to really unpack shame um, from our sexuality to really have that thriving sexual experience. And, you know, there are many ways in which to do that, but one way is to kind of find yourself in communities and cultures where sexuality is celebrated. So like just listening to this podcast, right? And listening to all the people that have, you've been interviewing on this podcast is one of those safe places where it's free from sexual shame. Yeah, and for some people, that's a big step in, in the first place, isn't it? Just to hear these things, but starts to um, unlock some of the shame that's held in the system. What else mm -hmm. might someone do around that? Mm. yeah really realizing that you know a lot of the shame that has come towards us is not ours right it's a kind of cultural shame societal shame parental shame and putting boundaries in place to push that away right to clear your energetic field from that toxic shame and I do a lot around that with clients um, on a somatic level finding that kind of shame-free state again and really just allowing that, because it is super toxic shame, just allowing that really super toxic energy just to depart and to really realize that it was never yours in the first place. It belonged to somebody else. Gosh, that brings tears to my eyes, that for some reason, just hearing you say, you know, that it was never yours in the first place, mm -hmm. because how many people believe that that shame is who they are? Yeah. You know, yeah. and I've been there and just to even hear that it's not yours mm. is, is uh, huge. And you mentioned about sort of sex positive spaces. And one of the things that we've seen over the last few years, especially is a, a huge growth in workshops around sexuality and intimacy. Mm -hmm. And there's so much great stuff out there. Um, However, there's also places that people have been to where they can be re-traumatized and isn't so trauma-informed or safe. And so for somebody, yeah, I'd love to hear you speak about how people might navigate this because it can be quite a lot to look at. And we've touched on it a little bit. The same principles apply in terms of what we spoke about before around finding a therapist. Mm -hmm. um, however, there is also another level, another dynamic in that workshop space. So, and, oh, and also the other thing I was curious about with you around this as well was the sort of concept of sort of hyper and hyposexuality and what can mm. happen in those spaces, because that's certainly something I've experienced. So a lot there. Yeah. I'll, I'll let you start. <laughs> so it comes back down to the foundations again. If we're going to enter those workshop spaces, if we don't know what it is that we need, then can we put healthy boundaries in place? No, we can't. So, you know, if we're at the beginning of this type of journey, we want to find workshop spaces that are really focused on needs and boundaries to begin to build up that um, embodied um, knowing of what our needs are and how to put our boundaries in place. Without that, we're really like a lamb to the slaughter in some of these sexuality workshop spaces. And what can happen if we're unclear on our needs is that we will be overriding ourselves. Um, the boundaries won't be there in place. So we might find ourselves 
going into what, what we've just described as like hypersexuality, which is, um, oh, look, I'm in this space. Everybody else is, you know, having a great time. Sexual freedom looks like engaging with multiple people. And so I'm going to express myself in that way. And really, that hypersexuality is a it's a response to having had a shutdown sexuality. So shutdown sexuality is like, I can't feel, I can't connect, it doesn't feel safe. And so we find ourselves in workshop spaces, it's like, oh, I want to belong to this culture. I want to belong to this community. And so the way to ensure belonging is to now become really hyper in my sexuality. And actually there's a belief that that's what healthy sexuality looks like. I've certainly been through that on my sexual healing journey. I thought I was in a place of sexual liberation, but actually I was in a place of hypersexualization. So recognizing that the pendulum does swing that way from shutdown to being completely open, which is why we really need to have the embodied work around boundaries under our belt before we step into those spaces. Thank you. That's such uh, an important important um thing for people to recognize and that just that step is really helpful and there's many places like working with somebody like yourself other practitioners and there's there's workshops that focus just on that nowadays which mm. is wonderful that that piece alone can be really digested and and and, and explored and any sort of if you're looking at these workshops is there anything else that you'd say are green flags or red flags that people might look out for if they're looking at whether it's marketing material or speaking to teachers um, or even speaking to participants because there can be a thing about going to going on referrals but sometimes the people that are have been to the workshops can be in a a space of hypersexuality for example yeah. and so it's it's really feed, trusting and feeling your way around these spaces so yeah some of the red flags and the green flags I mean I guess the first thing really is to know is to know what it is that you're looking for and what needs that you're looking to be attended to by coming into the workshop space so that's kind of your personal piece that you need to have awareness about you know if I was you know rewind 10 years ago um, and I was to advise my younger self the green flags I'd be looking for is is this a trauma-informed space am I going to be able to work at the pace of my body are my boundaries going to be respected am I going to be able to say no and sit out of things that don't feel right for me I would be researching the people who are holding the space. Do they have a trauma-informed qualification? At least one person, if there was a kind of like two or three people, is at least one person in the space trauma-informed. The red flags were really anything that's like speed, rapid transformation. Um, uh, words around community, I think, can be very harmful community and tribe because um, that can speak to our sense of belonging and often in these spaces the belonging is dependent upon being hypersexual um, I would be I would I'd have a conversation 
with the person who was like the main space holder. Um, and if that wasn't available as a, as a kind of pre-entry uh, um, possibility, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't attend. I would be asking questions about, you know, how do they detect hypersexuality in their space and what do they do about it when it shows up? I think what will happen as you start asking those questions of yourself and of the space holders is that it will become more apparent what other questions need to be asked. And that's just some really helpful and great things to help people to navigate this. And also mm -hmm. just to add that it isn't for everybody because I get a sense when I've spoke to people, I should be ready to go and do these or I should explore these. And actually for some people, they may never explore them. And that's absolutely okay. It may be just enough to work and the right amount to work with a practitioner one-to-one -one where you get everything you need. I'd love to bring some closing questions by asking you, is there one practice that, what is one practice that you do or have done that's really sort of made a significant difference in your life for whatever reason? I'd love to, I'd love to hear. Oh, I'm a practice junkie. <laughs> <laughs> um, so from a nervous system perspective, there's a practice which I'm doing at the moment, which I really love. It's called contact points. And this particular version of it is um, one to do when your nervous system is in more of a sympathetic activated state. And it allows you to, you start off like sitting upright in the chair. You start off with your feet on the floor and you just feel the sensations which are there, inviting like a softening because sympathetic activation is fast. So you can invite like a softening into the feet and you hang out there for a few minutes, noticing sensations. You do the same at the back of the thighs, the same at the back of the body, and then the same in the hands. And what's interesting about incorporating the hands into this practice is they are so far away from the midline of the body, which is where we generally have all the feelings, that they can often be a really safe place to allow ourselves to feel. And usually when I do this practice, it's often when I'm in a sympathetic activated state, it just slows everything right down. I go back into that ventral vagal state, calm connected, relaxed. And, you know, these types of practices, when done on a daily basis, actually rewire your nervous system. So the theory is that it takes about 60 days to, to rewire. So if you could commit to a practice like that for the next 60 days, it would have a profound effect on the well-being and regulation of your nervous system. Mm. And how long would you spend doing a practice like that? Depends, maybe five minutes, 10 minutes. Mm. Yeah. I'm doing it, I can feel it already. <laughs> I've been doing it as you've been talking me through it and already I can feel myself softening. And, mm. and just what you shared then as well, that practice can be a little thing. Mm. It just can be that few minutes here and there in a day that can make such a difference to our nervous system. Yeah. Yeah. It makes it really doable for people as well. So that's such a lovely uh, practice. Thank you. Yeah. 
And as this is a sexy life podcast, what does living a sexy life mean to you? Oh, well, I think it's about connecting to and living from that embodied sense of erotic aliveness. It's not necessarily about being in a sexual relationship with somebody or um, going to workshops or, or even working with a practitioner, but it's allow, can you allow that current of aliveness to move through you and give you pleasure on a day-to-day basis? So that, that relationship with body and self is just one of like juicy aliveness. Mm. Oh, that's gorgeous. Thank you so much. Mm. And is there anything you'd like to share about your work to finish off and where can people find you online? I'll put all the details in the show notes. Yeah, um, yeah. sure. Yeah, so I've got a website. You can find me there. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook. Those are the places I tend to hang out these days. Um, and the work that I'm currently offering, so I kind of spoke into it at the beginning. I've got one one-to-one coaching program, Thrive in Life, which is more about working with our own personal challenges and traumas which might show up in relationships and sexuality and then there's the thriving business program to where we can kind of like notice those patterns showing up within the business context my plan and I'm going to hold myself accountable to this (laughs) my plan is to um, create some online courses this year Um, but yeah covid and then frozen shoulder and other things have kind of put a, a delay on that um but uh i will be offering those uh later on this year for people who want to work more in that format wonderful and i really recommend signing up to your your newsletter because you send out some really great newsletters really thought provoking and considered and also your blogs you've got some you're a great writer and you've got some Mm. wonderful resources on there for people to find out more about some of these topics as well as your work so thank you so so much for your time today i really really appreciate it Mm. oh you're so welcome and I'm just really enjoyed the time that we've had together Sarah and yeah it's been a yeah a joyful joyful experience to share this with your practitioners and listeners out there wonderful oh thank you so much and have a gorgeous rest of the day Thank you for listening to the Love, Sex and Intimacy podcast with me, Sarah Rose Bright. I support women and couples across the globe to truly enjoy sex and pleasure and to create or deepen intimate relationships that are passionate and purposeful, happy and healthy, and I'd love to support you. You can book a complimentary call via my website at sararosebright.com to find out if my approach is right for you. And check out my website for information about my one-to-one coaching programs and any current workshops, group programs and retreats that I'm running. Wherever and whenever you are listening, wishing you a beautiful day.